Sure, this morning comes from Genesis 12, 1 through 3. If you have a pew Bible, that is found on page 8. And we'll also be in Matthew 28, 16 through 20. So if you'll turn there, starting in Genesis. It is our tradition here at Christ Community Church to stand, and I'll, I'll have you stand in just a minute, uh, and also after the scripture reading to reflect for just a few minutes on what God might be saying to you without the distraction of someone talking or music playing. So we encourage you to, um, to reflect silently afterwards. If you'll stand together for the reading of God's word, starting in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land I will show you. And I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And now turn to Matthew 28, 16 through 20. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him. But some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Let's take a few moments, if you'd be seated, to have reflection. I'll go ahead and dismiss uh, the kindergarten and first graders uh, to the chapel at this time. Uh, keep your fingers on Genesis 12 and Matthew 28. We'll be in those two texts this morning. The title of this morning's sermon is The Greatest Vision of All Time. Paul Phillips will be back next week. Uh, Paul Phillips is our pastor. I am not the pastor of the church, in case you didn't know. Uh, but he will be back with us next week. I want to ask you a question to start. Have you ever met a high school student or a teenager taking Algebra 2 that didn't like it? Or geometry, perhaps. What's the question they ask the teacher on the first day of school? Or at least halfway through the school semester, they, they ask the question, what's the use? Why do I have to learn this? What, what good is this going to do me in my life? Am I ever going to use this? Now, a student asked me that recently. And, um, you know, I didn't want to undermine the teacher or I didn't want to discourage them from, um, from being a bad student. Or I, I wanted to encourage them. And, and, and I was trying to think of something in the last month that I've used geometry and I can't. Now, maybe I'm using geometry and I just don't know it. But really, I can't really think of a moment where I've used geometry, maybe in the last three years. And so my answer to him was sort of a mustering up of, uh, well, you know, if you're an engineer, an architect, you're going to use it, definitely. You know, if you have to change your oil in your car, you're going to have to somehow use Algebra 2 somehow. So just, you know what, stick it out. You'll learn something. And that was about as good as it gets. And, and a lot of people look at teens who ask that question, and, you know, they maybe improperly conclude, oh, teens are lazy and they're apathetic. They don't care about working hard or, or learning stuff. And, and that's just not true. That's a, that's a false conclusion. 
If you were to go to Hoggard High School this last week, and during the 100-plus degree weather, you would see dozens of teenage boys running around sweating it out. Purpose-driven, clearly focused. These teens have a clear vision in their minds. It's different. It's different. And here's the principle. If, If the subject has no use, the learner has no interest. In football, they understand. In fact, I asked Zachary Phillips, I said, why do you run out in this heat every single day? You know, Zachary and Nathan are both on the football team. Why do you do that? Zachary says, well, to, to win to win the national or the national conference championship. We want our school to be the conference championship, to be the best of the best. And when there's no more games to play, we've won them all and we're on top. That's bringing true glory to our school. And that's what it is. That's what it's all about. And that's it, isn't it? Bringing glory to your school. I mean, that's, that's why these guys work so hard. It's clear as a bell in their minds. That's why they run practices in the heat. Why they get into a bus and travel for hours to other schools' stadiums. That's why they don't commit to extracurricular activities during football season. Or why they wear protective gear and try to, to buy the best cleats that they can possibly buy. Why they endure the deranged cursings of a coach and possibly the uh, belittlement of or ridicule of their other teammates and a host of other unpleasant things. They do it for glory. Now, the church of Jesus Christ has a similar vision. That's why we spend thousands of our dollars. That's why that's why teachers prepare lessons week after week. Paul Phillips, a sermon week after week. That's why the setup crew sets up every Sunday morning and they, they work so hard. That's why we play our guitars. That's why we play our pianos and sing. That's why we go whitewater rafting or canoeing or build sandcastles on the beach. All of it. We do it for glory. Of course, not our own glory, not even our high school's glory. But of course, we do it for the glory of God. Psalm 79 says, help us. We all feel that way. Help us, O God, our Savior, for the glory of your name. You see that? David is saying in Psalm 79, help us. But don't just help us to make us better, make us comfortable. He says, help us for a purpose. The glory of your name. First Corinthians 10. You've heard it many times. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, you fill in the blank. Do it all for the glory of God. That's where the, the Westminster Confession of Faith comes in and says the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. So that's our vision. Just like a football player would have a vision of the state championship or the conference championship. That's what they're going for. We have the vision of glorifying God. But that's not enough information. And, and here's what I mean by that. I am supposed to glorify God all the time. Especially in heaven. Think about it. What are we doing here now that's different than what we're going to be doing in heaven? Why am I still on earth? For what purpose am I here? In Christ, I am perfectly justified. All of my sins, the moment I became a Christian, washed away. And I was made fit, as it were, for heaven. I'm fit for heaven. 
I'm able to go into heaven right now. I'm perfectly justified. So why at that moment did God not come to me and say, you're ready, you've arrived. Come to heaven right now and glorify me perfectly in heaven. And the answer is quite simple. I haven't arrived, God says. I haven't made it. I'm not going home yet to glorify God in heaven. You see, here on earth, I am to glorify God differently then I'm going to glorify him in heaven. There's something unique about the way I glorify God here and now than the way I glorify God in heaven. The same is true for all of us. So the vision, if you, if you want to, the vision that we have is the answer to the question, how can we glorify God? How can we glorify God here and now? Well, I'm thankful that our Lord Jesus did not leave it up to us to invent such a vision. In fact, Jesus spelled out his vision for the church in very specific terms. He told us exactly how we are to glorify God here on earth. And some people refer, most people refer to this as the Great Commission. Well, this morning, I'd like to think about it in terms of being the greatest vision of all time. And so as we look at the Great Commission or the greatest vision of all time, I'm going to point out to you four universals. Now, as I read it, I want you to take a look and just see if you can point, if you can find the, the four universal statements that Jesus says in the Great Commission. I hope by looking at this, we can have a clear picture why we are doing what we're doing. It says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. The four universals. They're written in your bulletin. Uh, they're on the last page, I think. It says, all authority, all nations, all I have commanded, and always, all the days of this particular age. So I want to look closely at those four universal statements and see what it is we're doing here today that we're going to be doing differently from heaven. So how do we glorify God? Let's look at it. Great place to start in answering the question, how we glorify God, is to recognize God's authority, and specifically Jesus' authority as it's been given to him. It says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Jesus says, be confident. When you make disciples, be confident, but be confident in me. And let me explain. The word authority is exousia, which carries with it two meanings combined into one. The two meanings are the power and the right to do something. You have authority if you have the power and the right to do something. You know, there's moments in every person's life when we try to maybe wrestle power and authority into our own hands. We do it at home with our siblings. I think even as we get older, maybe possibly with our parents. We do it at school, in sports. It, we do it in relationships sometimes. In college, we do it with, with writing a paper, for example. If you write a paper, you have to have footnotes. What is a footnote? You're trying to quote someone else to gain power for your own paper. We do it when applying for a new job. We use a resume. I'm doing it right here, right now. As I speak forth the truth, and then support it with scripture. 
You see, the, the, the principle is this. Not one of us, when we think about how we can glorify God here on earth, not one of us can stand alone. We need others to empower what we say. We can't make disciples on our own. Now, here's an illustration. I was, in te- to, I was here at Temple Baptist in the youth room, sitting down after church, uh, when Shelley dropped off Hope for me. Hope came running up to me, and I was in the process of putting a table back, and I couldn't remember where Coastal Christian had the table, and I, I muttered this out loud. I wonder if I can move this table here. And Hope looks at me and says, Yes, Daddy, you can move it there. You can do that. And she looks at me as, as, as much joy as possible. And I looked at her and I thought, you know, I'm kind of like that sometimes. I say things, but I really don't have the authority to say them. Then along comes Jesus. None of us can stand alone. And then along comes Jesus. He forgives sins without asking permission from God. He calms a storm. He commands demons who, by the way, know his name and his authority. He told people that he was the only way to God. He cleaned up the temple and then he called it his house. He summed up the entire law. How arrogant can a man stand up in front of the teachers of the law and says, this is the greatest commandment. And the second one's like it. This is the whole law. Everything hangs on this. See, this is Jesus. Matthew 7 says, And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes taught. See, their scribes quoted other scribes, not Jesus. So when Jesus says that all authority in heaven and on earth is given to me, he is saying... He has the power and the right for everyone on earth to worship him. Power in heaven, authority in heaven over angels and the heavenly host, demons and Satan. He has authority on earth, winds, storms, hurricanes. Your life is his to rule. Your money, your children are his to rule. Your vacation, your retirement, your health. Is his to rule. He has authority over Buddhists, Muslims, animists, voodoo priests. He has the right and the power to be worshipped by everyone everywhere. He lays claim on every life. That's the authority of Jesus. Okay, I get the authority of Jesus. I understand that. But have you ever wondered how that relates to the great vision, the greatest commission of all time? How does that relate to making disciples? Well, really, there's, there's two responses that the world is going to have. If you, the Christian, try to make a disciple without Jesus' glory being clearly seen. In other words, if a Christian goes out and tries to make a disciple, and the world does not see the authority of Jesus, either because you haven't told them or because they're blind to it, they're going to have one of two reactions. The first one is they're going to be offended. And you, you see this all the time. What right do you have to tell me to rearrange my whole way of thinking and that all the other religions are wrong and you're right? What right do you have? We hear that all the time from the world. And, you know, that response (laughs) 
kind of makes us afraid, I think. I think it makes us afraid to say anything at all. Moses was afraid. He pleaded with God that he did not have the authority to go before Pharaoh and tell this king to let his people go. He was wrong. We're afraid sometimes of what the world will say to us. But Jesus anticipates this reaction. He anticipates this reaction. And he says, look, I'm going to ask you to tell people that they're in the dark. And when they ask you, what right do you have? All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. That's that's how you're going to do it. So if that's how you're feeling, when you make a disciple, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Be confident. Stand under Jesus' authority. Maybe, maybe they're not offended. This is the other reaction the world will have. If you try to make a disciple, Jesus' authority is not clearly seen, and the, the, the people are not offended. Maybe they receive the message and they become a disciple. But if they believe you and don't clearly see Christ's authority, then you're the authority. I mean, you might be successful at making a disciple. But without Jesus, they'll be the, a disciple of you. They will look to you as the wise man with all the answers. I love being the wise man with all the answers. It happens about once a year, but I, I love that feeling of people looking at me and respecting me. Some of us here at Christ Community Church are respected for our knowledge of the Bible. There are a lot of great teachers here at Christ Community Church, and we look up to them. And so we should. Paul the Apostle says there are people gifted with teaching and great knowledge of the Bible. That's true. But if you're someone who's looked up to by a child, a teenager or an adult, if you're someone who's looked up to, Jesus is saying, be careful. Don't forget your place. You do not speak as one with authority. Save the authority of Jesus Christ. Mark Dever made this clever analogy. He said, we're all like male men. It's a male man's job to deliver the mail faithfully, but deliver someone else's mail faithfully. Let's say, if you received a letter from the mailman, and it was from a judge who asked you to, to come to court and stand trial, let's say you did just that. Let's say you went to court and you stood trial, and you're, you're standing trial. Someone asked you, what possessed you to come to court today? Would your answer be, the mailman told me? No, the, no, the mailman has no authority. The judge has the authority. And, and the point is, we're not the judge. You and I are not the judge. When we go out and make disciples, remember, we're simply the mailman carrying God's message. So Christ starts out, he says, all authority is given to him and not us, so that we don't have to be afraid of what the world might say, and so that we don't take over. He says, be confident, but be confident in me. And if you find yourself realizing, yeah, I kind of, that's me. One of those two, yeah, that's me. I would like to point you to the last four chapters of Job. It will give you confidence. It will remind you that Christ has confidence. The last four chapters of Job. Here's a man who God allowed to suffer Totally suffer at the request of Satan. And Job called God to make sense of his suffering. In the last four chapters, God speaks. And God 
never explains his reasoning. He explains his authority. And that's it. I would read those four chapters and just jot down on a three by five card some of those phrases. They're they're penetrating and it'll remind you of God's authority. Well, not only is God or Jesus, not only does he have all the authority and remembering that helps us understand how we're to glorify God here on earth. But also by going and making disciples of all nations, the second universal statement, the focus is it now changes from God to others around us. Okay, so we're making him known and no, we're knowing Christ focuses on him. And now we're making him known. It always goes like that with Jesus. It always the focus always changes to others. In Matthew 22, it says this hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together. And one of them, an expert in the law, tested him with this question. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus replied. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. Pharisees knew that. Everybody knows that. That's the greatest commandment. Okay, now if he'd have stopped there, that would have answered their question because that was their... What's the one, one command that's the great... That's it. But then what does Jesus do? He says, and the second one is just like it. It's like the Pharisees, thank you, Jesus, and they respond. And Jesus says, and the second one, and they turn around. Huh? There's more? is just like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. The focus comes off of God and ourselves and onto others. Jesus is pointing us to the neighbors. And here, in the greatest vision of all time, found in Matthew 28, he does the same thing. Make disciples of all the nations. And you need to go to them to do that. He says something about himself, and then he says something about others around us. That's the vision of this life. That's how we're to bring glory to God here and now. We're here for them. If you hear nothing else this morning, that's probably the most important phrase I think I can say. We are here for them. That's the theme of the entire Bible, reaching out. God using his people to reach others, to save others. On the front of your bulletin, Ralph Winter writes the very first quote. I'll read it to you. It says, most Christians think that the Bible doesn't really emphasize missions. They see it as sort of an afterthought of Christ that he had at the, at the end, the very end of his mission or ministry, as if he snapped his fingers at the last minute before his ascension into heaven and said, oh, by the way. There's just one more thing. But actually, the Bible begins with missions and maintains missions as its central theme throughout. So I want to just look at a couple of passages to demonstrate that. Let's look at Genesis 12 once again, 1 through 3, and I'll read it very quickly. It says, The Lord said to Abram, Leave your country, your people, and your father's household, and go to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great. How's that Abram taking all this so far? Yes, I'm going to be great. Yes, I'm going to be a great nation. God's going to bless me. I can't wait. And all of us would feel the same way. But God has a purpose here. End of verse two, it says, and you will be a blessing. Further on, it says, 
all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. And Abraham says, oh, it's not about me. I exist for them. God is building a nation whose vision it is to bless all the nations, all the others. Now, you don't have to move here, but I'm going to demonstrate again in Genesis 26. God repeats this to Isaac. It says in verse 2 of 26, The Lord appeared to Isaac and said, Do not go down to Egypt. Live in the land where I tell you to live. Stay in this land for a while, and I will be with you and will bless you. For to you and your descendants I will give all these lands and will confirm the oath I swore to your father. I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars of the sky, and I will give them all these lands. The same thing Isaac is saying, Yes! It's all about me. Yes, my descendants will be great. My land will be great. Everything about me is going to be great. Yes, it's going to be God doing it. And yes, I'll give praise to God. But that's it. I'm, I'm so excited. And then comes this phrase in verse 4. And through your offspring, all nations on earth will be blessed. Oh, Isaac says, it's not about me. I exist for them. God is going to build a nation whose vision it is to bless all the other nations. David says it in 1 Chronicles 16. Declare his glory, he says. Declare his glory among the nations. His marvelous deed among all the peoples of the earth. Psalm 45. I will perpetuate your memory through all generations. I'm going to pass down, God, your memory You, your name, through all generations. And here's why he says that. Therefore, the nations will praise you forever and ever. It's not enough for me to be blessed and to simply praise God. See, here on earth, there's a vision to use my blessing so that all the nations will join me in praising God. It's clear that God intended to make disciples of all the nations from the very beginning. Some of us will go to the farthest reaches of the globe. When it says go, that's where we'll go. Papua New Guinea, South America. Some of us, though, will stay here in our home country. So going includes for us who stay here more than just physically going somewhere to another country. It means thinking of others around us. This can be hard, especially for me. I I feel it as much as anyone There are people here at Christ Community Church that we can go to. There's people at our jobs that we can go to, co-workers. How about our schools or our neighborhoods? There's people that we can go to. We can make them disciples. This is our business. Everything we do here at Christ Community Church has to fit into that goal. How does Sunday service fit into that goal? How does Sunday school? How does raising my daughter fit into that goal? How does building a sandcastle on Curry Beach fit into that goal? You know, I was in DJ's, uh, DJ Phelps' small group. We were studying Mark, and uh, I see a, a, a number of people that were in that small group, and uh, it, it was great. It was the one bright moment of my week when I could let my guard down and be among like-minded Christians. At the time, I was working in, uh, in the public school, and boy, it was a great hour that we spent together. And we all knew each other well and did fun things together, had a great time. And, and, and then one night DJ said, uh, you know, the, the goal of our group is, is to break up and, and then make two groups. How do you think the group responded to that? I mean, what? 
We're going to break up. We got, we got something good going here, you know? Why are we breaking up? That's the moment right there where you see clearly the vision that Christ has given us. Don't stay in that group. Think of others. Go into all the nations. They're there for you to go to. Declare his glory there. Now, there's a purpose for a small group. I'm not saying it's bad. I'm just saying Christ has given us a vision. We ought not forget about the others. Are you in a cozy social group? Are you resistant to going? I'd encourage you to think about the people in this room and in your life. Who can you go to lunch with? Who can you invite to dinner? Get to know people for no other reason than to share the salvation of Christ. So the next universal is to teach them to obey all that I've commanded. All that I've commanded. That's the next one. It's not enough just to know God's authority. Jesus has all the authority. Now I'm going to others and I'm trying to make disciples. Okay, once they're baptized, what do I do then? I teach them all that Jesus has commanded. That's the next one. What is all Jesus had commanded? (laughs) That's a lot. He talked about prayer and fasting and divorce and loving your enemies and so many other things, too. A good place to see this maybe is in in, uh, this universal statement is also in Acts 20, where Paul says to the Ephesian elders, I haven't hesitated to proclaim to you the whole counsel of God, the whole will, all of it, the whole gospel. Don't leave any part of it out. But here's the thing that caught my attention when I was studying this this week. It's not just to teach what Jesus commanded. It's to teach, the ESV says, to observe. And the NIV says to obey. Teach others to obey. You see, there's an action here. Teaching to obey. Helping people learn how to act, what to do. What's their vision? What are they doing with their lives? Jesus starts and ends his ministry by training people to be something very, very specific. Listen to it in the, in the first chapter of Mark. He's going to make his first disciples. He's, he's doing exactly what we are supposed to be doing here on earth. I'm going to go make a disciple. He says, hey, you guys over there, come and follow me. You're going to be one of my 12 disciples. And they drop their nets and they come and follow him. But he doesn't say, come and be my disciples. For the word disciples, he uses something else. He says, come and follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Fishers of men. Everything that disciple will learn is for this, to become a more effective fisher of men. The disciplines we've been studying, fasting, praying, tithing, reading the Bible, defeating sin, all of them work so that I might be a more effective fisher of men because that's how we're supposed to glorify God here and now. That's the business of this life. Paul says, for to me, to live is Christ and no other. Christ, for me to die is gain. So we're to be disciples who make disciples who make disciples and so on and so forth. Because a disciple is a fisher of men. We teach to obey. Our distinctive on the internet says this. Christ Community Church is a teaching church. Committed first and foremost to the teaching of the Bible, every ministry of Christ Community Church is intended to increase the knowledge and application of Holy Scripture. 
in the lives of God's people. And, and if there was a period there, it would be unbiblical. But it doesn't. In order to lead others to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ so that they, the others, can live to the glory of God. We're not just trying to become smarter people, better people, just for better sake. We could go to heaven and be perfect. But Christ gave us a vision. We're fishers of men. Are we fishing? Is that our life's goal? I'm going to give you um, an illustration that helped me kind of see this a little bit clearly. Max Lucado, uh, many of you might know him. He's a very popular uh, author, writes many books. Well, he wrote um, about a summer when he went on a fishing trip with his dad. And his dad allowed him to bring his best friend. So it's the three of them in a trailer. And when they arrived at the lake to go fishing, where they were going to fish, it, it stormed for three days. And they stayed in their trailer. The first day was great. They played cards, you know, drank hot cocoa or whatever. They, they had a good time playing jokes and telling jokes, reading books and stuff. The second and third day got harder and harder. By the third day, they, they actually were fighting amongst each other. They were cramped in this little place, you know, and they were just bickering amongst each other. And they left early. And Max Lucado said something brilliant. It was very interesting. He said, that weekend, I learned something, not about fishing, but about people. He says, when those who are called to fish don't fish, they fight. When those who are called to fish don't fish, they fight. When energy that is intended to be used outside is used only on the inside, the result is fighting, bickering. Instead of being fishers of the lost, we become critics of the saved. Church scrooges, bah humbug, spirituality, split churches, poor and weak testimonies. No need for prayer. No need for Bible reading. No hunger for the word. Legalistic wars. When those who are called to fish don't fish, they fight. A lot of things happen. And the last thing Christ says in the Great Commission, turn your attention to this phrase. I will be with you always to the end of the age. The all of that, the universal statement, is all of the days of this age. You and I are in an age. And in order to glorify God here and now, we need to recognize that we're in an age that has a beginning and an end. It does not last forever. This job is only supposed to last until we die. To, to the end of our lives. But it lasts until the end of our lives. There is no retirement from this job here on earth. Being fishers of men is all, all that we're consumed with. Here and now, Christ is with us. Christ is with us. In heaven, we will be with Christ. So as we think about this vision, you think about your life, you think about your weekly schedule, who you eat with, who you socialize with, what activities your children are involved in. Let's remember Jesus' authority. He says, be confident, but be confident in me. Go outside your comfort zones. Teach others to obey Christ, to be fishers of men all the way until we die and go to heaven. And Christ is with us.
I hesitate a little bit. I don't want to simply have a plea here to get involved in ministry. Although we always need more people. Young children's ministry needs lots of people, especially men. K-5 is the same. Middle school, high school, I could put you right now into something. <laughs> College ministry, adult ministry, small groups, we need more leaders for all of these things. But that's not the ultimate message, I hope. We need to get ourselves equipped for every good work. We need to make the disciplines standard in our lives. But wherever God leads you, open your eyes to the others that he's placed there. May God give us ears to hear and eyes to see. Let's pray together. Father, we do pray that you would help us see more clearly what you would have us do. Lord, put people in our lives that you want us to interact with. Make us aware, Lord, of those people that you've placed in our lives. God, help us to equip ourselves Help us to receive your spirit for power. Never forget your authority. But Lord, help us go. Help us do the impossible and make a disciple for you. For we know it is you, Lord, not us. It is you who changes lives. And for some reason, you insist on using us. And so, in obedience, we say yes. And now, Lord, take these offerings, use them for your kingdom. We pray in Christ's name.